You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Judges, and now we're going to look at sort of the second component the second installment of the story of Samson. So if you have your copy of Scripture, will you stand with me as we look at Judges 14 and 15. Now, I'm not going to read all of that, but I'm going to give you a flavor of these two chapters by reading the first seven verses of chapter 14, and then we're going to pick up in verse 14 and read through verse 20 in chapter 15. So just get ready. We're going to go from 14 to 15. And what I'm going to do is give you some highlights here of what's going on in Samson's life. So let's listen to these words. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know. And I want you to notice verse 4. Okay, this is narration. But it's God explaining to us what's going on here in this story. It gives us a little bit of an inside look at it from God's perspective. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The Lord was. At that time, the Philistines ruled Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, skip, if you will, to chapter 15, verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, Notice again, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it struck 1,000 men and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, and notice this, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we look at this story, we are reminded of God, just how wicked our hearts can be at times. And, 
as we look to Samson's life, we see very little here that can encourage us or to guide us in the way we should go. And yet, Lord, you use Samson to do your work. And God, we know that you work in this world in mysterious ways. But my prayer today is, is that the Lord, you, Lord, will rush upon us, that you will help us to experience your glory, that we as a people of God will not miss the opportunities that are all around us. God, there are so many people we could reach. So set our hearts on fire with the gospel today, Lord, and help us to serve you with all of our heart, mind, strength, and with all of our soul, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, the bad thing about reading a story like Samson is, is somebody will say, well, you know, I may not have it all together, but I'm not as bad as Samson, okay? Well, that's not how we want to start today. We know that Samson is a negative example in many ways And quite frankly, when we look to this passage, and today we really begin to see it, we realize that Samson is Scripture's wrecking ball. He is a walking disaster. He is about as flawed a character in the Bible as you will find. And yet, notice, at least twice in this passage, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. This man so flawed was still an agent used by God in a mighty way. God, again, is mysterious in how he works. Because you would think, okay, um, God's people needed a judge. To use a more modern term, they needed a leader. They needed someone to come and lead them. And leadership requires, in my mind, someone who's detail-oriented, hopefully wise, nuanced in how they handle situations. Think of it in these terms. It's kind of like a surgeon has a scalpel where he's doing really fine work, can, can do those, those, those cuts in the most uh, discreet way possible. And then we have Samson, and he's like a surgeon with a a sledgehammer, right? He's coming at everything, and it seems like he's wrecking every situation that he's involved in. But what we need to realize is, is that God is doing something here, something bigger than just giving us historical perspective. In fact, in the text here, what we have is, as I told you in verse 4, we begin to see some divine perspective. So let me just say this to each of you. As we're reading the scriptures, we need to realize, especially in the Old Testament, yes, we're always looking at stories involving humans and nations and wars and all the things that go along with human history. But what we're always looking for is the divine perspective. What is God doing? What is God saying? Now, what he was doing and what he was saying is certainly a message for the people in those days, in the day that this was originally written. But God's word has something for us too. God speaks to us through the scriptures and helps us see what we need to see, some insight into our own hearts. The Philistines had extended deep into the the heart of Israel. In fact, they were the rulers over Israel. The text tells us that. The Philistines were not just a tribe on the edge. They weren't like a nuisance on the side. They were the problem of this age. And the Philistines had driven deep into the mountains near Jerusalem, near where uh, Samson and his family lived. They were there. They were a problem. And Samson was called. If you remember last week when we were talking about the birth narrative of Samson, we were told that he was going to bring the beginning of the end. 
The Hebrew, as I found it this week, is actually more interesting. It says that Samson would strike the first blow. It literally says Samson's role in all of this is to strike the first blow. Now, doesn't that sound like a Samson line? That fits him. He is the wrecking ball. He is the sledgehammer. For whatever reason, God chose a man like this for this time. Maybe it was because it was a brutal time. I don't know. But this is God's chosen instrument of the day. But let us not miss this point. Almost everything we hear about Samson is negative. I'll show you one very positive verse in all these two chapters at the end. But for now, let me say, most of what we hear about Samson is not exactly praiseworthy, glowing comments about his personality. This guy was truly, truly a wrecking ball. But I believe Samson, whose name means son, had the potential to be a shining light in Israel, a beam of light shining in the dark world of that time period. So if he is the sun, he should have been rising. But it seems like from the very beginning, chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to see, instead of rising up, he seems to always be going down. And I want us to pause for a moment, as we're going to do several times here today, and we need to think about what this means for us. I don't want you just to learn the story of Samson. I want you to think about your story Every one of you, when you were saved that day many years ago, or maybe not that long ago, God put a light in your heart that should be rising up, that should be providing light and guidance to the world. But the question is, are we a light that's in the ascendancy, or are we a light descending? And for Samson, we see the negative here. We see the descension of the light. But I believe that God wants to to get you up, to make you rise up, to Get away from those sins that cause you to stoop so low. The trajectory of your life today can go in the opposite direction. If you are going through difficulties, if darkness has been all around you, if depression, if bad choices, if tragedy is surrounding you, listen, I understand that's bad stuff, but we don't have to allow that to keep bringing us down. There is a light in you that God wants to let shine. But to do that, You have to let God lift you up. Our first point is this. Sin takes us below God's plan. So in your mind, I want you just to think of a line, just a line, and we're going to call it, as Francis Schaeffer called it, the line of despair. Most people in the world today live below the line of despair. And what Schaefer meant by that was more philosophical, that, that really all of us, when we don't have Christ, we're, our decisions and our passions stay in this material world. We're down here where we realize that all the good things we can do, one day we're going to be stuck six foot in the ground, we're going to die, we can't take it with us. That's lower story stuff. And if you don't have the hope of heaven in Jesus Christ, you can't even talk about the upper story reality but when we look at the story of Samson we see a person who is who is given we are told in the birth narrative in chapter 13 he could be someone that is a light for everybody if he will allow God to lift him up but instead right there look at chapter 14 verse 1 the first three words of our passage Samson went down if you'll look in verse 5 um, you'll see then Samson went down. And throughout the narrative, you'll see that Samson went 
down. Now, this is a double entendre, which means it has two meanings. One, it is down. Literally, where his parents lived, uh, there in the mountains outside, 13 miles outside of Jerusalem, that's a high point. And geographically speaking, as they went west, they would have went down to the lowland plains on the Mediterranean. So that is, that is a way of putting it, like he did go down. That is accurate. That is literal. But the writers of Scripture are brilliant at tying little things like this. And the real meaning, I think, here is, is every time that he went down to Timnah, he is lowering the spiritual standard. He is going down below the line of despair. And I look at people today, many of us have been raised in church. We know right. We've been taught the word of God. And yet we keep going down to the place where we know we shouldn't go. Instead of staying where God would have us be, we go below the line and then we wonder why we suffer. When I was a kid, there were some old farmhouses there in southern Illinois. I remember one that was abandoned. And when I was a kid, we'd go out to it at night and, you know, you know throw rocks at it and all those things that teenage kids do they shouldn't do. Probably shouldn't be saying this. But anyway, I think the fire department finally burned it down, which is a really good thing. But I remember one of the scariest things. We'd be out there at night and it had an old cellar. How many of you have been in one of those old farmhouses that has a, like a legitimate cellar? Like where you go on the outside and there's these wooden doors and you flop them open and you go down in the ground? I mean, you might as well go into a tomb especially at midnight, you know, when you shouldn't be somewhere. So darkness, you're going down. That's the image that I get here. I think that the writer of Scripture is telling us that they're going down into this. Samson is going down into this dark place. He's going where he shouldn't go, where the sun literally can't be bright, where it's not going to make the impact. Samson goes down. And notice what happens when he goes down to Timnah. Verse 1 tells us that his eyes saw a beautiful woman. And this beautiful woman is a Philistine. To marry her was a direct violation of the commandments of God. If you want to look it up, Deuteronomy 23. Now, when God says no, it's a no. Amen? But I want you to look at chapter 14, verse 3. And it's not just God said no. His mama said no. So not only is it against God, but it's against his mama. And he's still going down to Timnah. This is a man living in rebellion against God and all the authority that is around him. And here's the deal. Notice how it, there is an emphasis on what he saw. And if you know the story well, in chapter 16, what does he lose as a result of his sins? His eyes. His eyes are gouged out. Not too many years ago, I was uh, you know, going through some books and looking at some interesting archaeological finds, they've actually found that the tools of torture used to do these very things, the metal iron implements that they used to take out people's eyes. They've actually found these things. Listen, these were cruel people, but sin is cruel. Samson, because he allowed his eyes to lead him, instead of the heart that was touched by God, his eyes were pulled out of his head. I know that's a terrible image, but why are we so afraid to say something like that when sin, what it's going to do to you, is terrible? If you, if you take the time to really listen to people who have lived this, in this world and experienced darkness, I'm here to tell you that, that what I'm telling you about Samson is bad, but so many people are going through terrible darkness because of the choices of sin. Our idols bring great harm upon us. What we see... What we think we want often comes back to harm us. This is why Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 29. I think it puts it in context. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And throughout Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, we see that, as an example, we see again and again that people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Samson is really just an extension. He is a a metaphor, an illustration of a larger problem. He represents, I believe, and this is just my view, no one represents Israel better than Samson. His life is sort of the story of God's people in the judges. All this potential being thrown away because they would rather have their sin. They would rather have what was right in his eyes, as it says here in the text in verse 3. It's such a sad thing. It's an aside, but an interesting one. Deuteronomy 27 tells us that if a man is married, he, he is exempt from military service. Now, uh, some of the commentators bring this up. I want you just to think about this. Here's a man that's obviously called to do battle against the Philistines, and one of his first choices is making him ineligible to be a warrior. I mean, this guy, he was called to be a warrior, He was called to strike the first blow, but his very first decision that we see is something that actually removes him from military service. It gets worse. Chapter 14, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now that sounds innocent. But what in the world is a Nazarite, someone who's taken a Nazarene vow, doing near a vineyard? It is the way not to go. Even a choice that seems innocent, like, you know, your GPS gives you three routes, and it says that this one's the most green, whatever. How does it know that? You know, we go this way, this way, and this way. Like down in, when I was, uh, this summer, I've traveled a little bit in Arkansas, and like every time I've been down there, there's been like three choices And they're all like within minutes of each other, but like the miles are totally different. Like you can go straight or you can do, you know, one of these, right? And so we all make these choices. I mean, which path are we going to take? Well, if it's going to be during the day, go go take the the scenic route or whatever. But if it's going to be at night, you take the, the straighter path, right? We use our minds like this. Well, Samson is not using his mind. He is going in the direction of trouble. And it's like he doesn't seem to even care. He should be nowhere near it. While he's in that vineyard, he kills a lion. This is one of those memorable stories of Samson. He has the spirit of the Lord rush on him, and he tears the lion up without any weapons. This is a strong man when he is filled with the spirit. But the story gets weird because when he comes back through, there's a carcass of the lion there, and in it, some bees have built a nest, and now there's honey, and he eats the honey, and all God's people say, you. But it's not just you. It's, it, it's about, again, breaking the vow. A Nazarite should not be touching a dead thing. So again, we see him do that, and he even feeds it to his parents. How gross. Now, I don't know if his mother still had this vow of the Nazarite, but she had taken it at one time. So in one sense, he's even polluting her and and causing her to be unholy before her God. Listen, when you begin to go down the path of sin, you are going to do more than hurt yourself. You are going to bring down those that are nearest to you. Sin has a ripple effect, and the biggest waves hit the people nearest to you. And we see this here in the text. From the very beginning of chapter 14, he keeps going down below the line of despair. Even though when he goes down, he kills hundreds and then thousands of people out of his anger. He destroys crops. And there's all these crazy stories about foxes or jackals, whatever they are, burning up fields. And I'll just say this. Even though he like, physically killed a lot of men, 
The story there about him burning down barley fields, probably more people would have died as a result of hunger than he ever killed with his hand in anger. I mean, this man was a wrecking ball in so many ways. And again, he's gone down into the cellar of sin. Everything he does is retribution. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. Basically, they ask him, his, his countrymen ask him, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he said, as they did to me, the end of verse 11, so have I done to them. He is about retribution. And let me pause again and just say this. When we are angry, when we are trying to do things and we're angry about it, I, I feel like that is not going to be good, that we're going to do more harm than good. This was a man that was never about reconciliation. He was always about retribution. And that, again, I think is a sign of being below that line of despair. The world is broken. The world is mostly, many times, pessimistic and dark. The world needs you to rise above the line of despair. People need to know that the hope of the gospel is in your heart. They need to see the joy of the Lord flowing through you. Those who are below the line of despair are despairing. And only those who are able to be lifted up by the power of God, the Spirit of God, the love of God, can let forth, shine forth the light of God that the world needs to see. The Spirit will lift you up. That's our second point. God's Spirit lifts us up in our weakness. One wonders if Samson ever took his calling seriously. Maybe you've known somebody who had great gifts, but it just seemed like they were always joking their life away, never taking seriously what, what they were supposed to do in this world. But what's interesting is, is that we are told in chapter 15, verse 20, and we're going to want you to put kind of an asterisk by this, asterisk by this, and we'll come back to it. In 1520, we are told that, that he, Samson, judged for 20 years. Now, that, that's surprising to me because... When we look at the story, all this could have happened in a year or two. So there is much of this story of Samson that we will not know until we get to heaven. And in fact, what we do know of Samson, as the Lord has seen fit, what we don't have much anything positive said about him, we really just have his negatives. So I think there actually may have been some positives. So let me just, again, put that on, on the side shelf for just a moment. We'll come back to that. But here in this text, especially chapters 14 and 15, man, all we see in Samson is human weakness. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, that This is not the standard Sunday school image of Samson that we have. When we think of Samson, we think of the strength of Samson. But if you're paying attention to the text... It's not highlighting his feats of strength as much as it's highlighting his weakness of character. The weakness of his morals, the weakness of his moorings and bearings as it relates to the word of God. What we see in Samson, sadly, is a man who has weak faith and weak morals. That should shock us. Samson's story is, is always remembered for strength, but God's word is telling us that it's about human weakness. He is strong when the spirit rushes upon him. Church, we need to listen to that. We are at our best when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are at our worst when we are filled with ourselves. In fact, Samson's story is when you look at it carefully, like in chapter 14, verse 14, um, and then again in chapter 15, verse 16, he's always using riddles and he's using clever language. 
So, you know, when we think of Samson, we think of the big, big dumb guy or something like that, some kind of uh, a silly image of that nature. But when you really read what he said, here is a person who has the ability to manipulate words. He could have been a strong military leader, but he could have been, I think, a really strong leader. So what is Scripture doing here? Well, I think we see in Samson an unstable man. I think we see us at our worst. I said earlier that, you know, you can always say, well, at least I'm not as bad as, well, if it's not Samson, you're always looking around. You know, in, in your home, sometimes if you had a sibling that was always in trouble, you would say, well, at least I'm not, and then, you know, kind of fill in the blank, right? You know, that's just really poor. It's kind of like the guy you're out hiking with, and you know, he's a, a super a stud athlete or whatever, and you say, what are we going to do about bears? He said, I never worry about bears. That's what I brought you for, because the bears are going to get the slowest guy, and that's you. You know, that, that's kind of how we treat the Christian life. Well, you know, I'm a little faster than, than the other guy, so I'm okay. No, no, no. We can't think that way. We have to have a better view of who we are and what we're called to do. And I believe that Samson really is. When we look at him, no, we don't recognize superhuman strength that can kill a thousand people. We're not like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's who I am. But when we see someone who is tempted by sexual desire, when, you, when we see someone who is not listening to wise authority, we are seeing like what we do at our worst. Samson is putting a mirror up. And you may not see your reflection in the mirror perfectly here or there, but there is something here for us to see because Samson's heart is off the mark. But God's plan is never off the mark. God is sovereign. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon a man who didn't deserve it and used him to bring an end to the Philistine threat against God's people. I just hate, when I look at this story, I see a man who could have gone and talked to his parents, could have gotten help. Um, you'll notice there that he doesn't tell his parents what he has done, chapter 14, verse 6. I mean, every single person in his life that could have helped him, he seems to not listen to them. It's so sad. He doesn't listen. And we have, church, we have been given much grace, but I just wonder are we letting God grow us in this grace? Are we building on victories from the past and just moving on with life? Or are we going to allow God to really change us? Twice more in our passage today, we see this phrase, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. We see it in each instance, he does great damage. First, he strikes down 30 men, chapter 14, verse 19, and then he strikes down 1,000 men according to chapter 15, verse 15. God is showing him signs of what he is capable of in the spirit, but he opts out of the spiritual power and he indulges in the flesh. Let me just ask you, how many of you, how many of us are missing the most that God has for us? How many of you have strength, wisdom, something to offer the church but you are not offering it because you are chasing your passions. Too many of us are weak like Samson. We are not allowing the strength of the Lord to guide us. And this brings us to our only hope. And our final point, we are at our best when we admit our need. This morning, looking at a text like this, it it kind of blows the mind, especially in chapter 15. When you pick up there in verse 14, you see one man 
taking on a thousand Philistines. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have a shield. He has the freshly dead jawbone of a donkey. That's all he has. And he kills a thousand people. The rational person comes to this story and says, this is an example of mythology in the scriptures. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe in the Bible. But I think that that is a very narrow view when we look at history. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but when you study the mythologies of all cultures, and quite frankly, the histories of all cultures, every ancient culture I know has their stories about mighty warriors who were able to take on hundreds if not thousands of enemies and defeat them. I believe that human history shows that from time to time there are these super warriors that are, are raised up. The Hebrews had a word for it. The Greeks had a, a word for it. Kind of the Hercules, if you will, kind of uh, image. That is throughout Scripture. We see even the mighty men of David, for instance, and throughout history. Let me tell you what, where I've come down, where, where this story, what it leads me to think. I believe if God is real and God can fill a person with his Holy Spirit, anything is possible. Don't get caught up in this because the most amazing thing of all, those of you who've lived long enough, it's one thing to beat somebody in a wrestling match. It's another thing to see someone turn from their sins and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You talk about a wrestling match. When you're trying to share the faith, nothing will wear you out faster than sharing your faith. And you will lose the battle every time if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. I think we see in this scripture that there are possibilities that we have shut off or shut down because of our lack of faith. Many times we have said, God bring revival, and then we spend the rest of the day worrying about the fact that it's never going to happen. We do the same thing with just our prayer needs. We'll, we'll lay something before the Lord, and it's like we pick it right back up, and we carry it with anxiety the rest of the day. When God lays something on your heart, and you lift it up to God, leave it before God, and know that he will answer. Also know he's not going to answer the way you think he's going to answer. God sends different kinds of people to do different kinds of things, but God works the way he works, and he's not going to ask our permission I told you that there was one glimmer of hope in this passage, and I want to share that with you here at the end. And this glimmer of hope, I pray, will lead you to move in your heart and in your spirit. What we see here in verse 18 is that after Samson had defeated the 1,000 men, he was very thirsty. Look at verse 18, and notice this. And he called upon the Lord and said, notice this, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, here's the thing. This man, who almost nothing positive is said about, called on the name of the Lord, acknowledges that the power came from above, and that, yes, it was his hand that did the work, but it was God's power. This is a moment where we see what Samson could be. In this simple prayer, this honest prayer, we see the strongest man that ever lived admitting his weakness and need for the Lord. 
And I look out and I think about the first service and this service and how many of us are here today and we have been called by God. We've been given gifts of grace. We could make a difference in this world. And maybe, just maybe, the reason why we are seeing a fruitlessness instead of fruitfulness in our ministry is because we are trying to do it in our own strength. Samson, when he was filled with the Spirit, had more strength than anybody else, but even he needed the Lord. And today in our churches, we may know the answers, but it doesn't seem like we have the power. We can crow all day long about being right as it relates to God's Word, but if we are not empowered by the Spirit, what good is it to just say we are right? God has called us to make an impact. And I'm not saying he wants you to be a wrecking ball or a sledgehammer, but man, I know we can make a deeper dent on our culture than we're making now. I believe that Samson's old sinful ways were going to come back, but I think this is where we can pause in the text and we say, after this prayer, God gave nearly 20 years of ministry to Samson, and we do not know what happened or why there is silence during that period, but here's what the Lord spoke to my heart, and I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but it sure looks this way. It looks like that in a moment of vulnerability and honesty, Samson was given another chance, and he was given a few more chapters of life that he would have never had. And so that brings me to ask this question. What if one moment of honesty, one moment of vulnerability could give you several more decades of good life, several more years of service to the king? I think that God has something beautiful for you. But it's not going to happen until you admit you are thirsty. The strongest man who ever lived had to pray and ask for help. And when he did, God gave him what he needed. We are at our best when we admit our needs. Wednesday night, we finished up the book of Revelation it was, a, it was quite a journey um, for me personally, just writing uh, sermon after sermon, 50 plus sermons in the book of Revelation. Of course, everybody wants to know, you know when the end of time is going to be, and we kind of didn't answer any of those questions, so it was completely unsatisfying for several people, I'm sure. But what we saw in Revelation, and what I saw, and I hope you who were with me uh, following along saw, is that The book of Revelation isn't trying to tell us the exact date on the calendar when Jesus comes back, but it is trying to ignite our witness until that day, to light a fire in the church that right now seems to be rather dim. So Wednesday night, we were finishing up this this, uh, pretty big series, long series, and as I was sharing these thoughts with the congregation that had gathered, it occurred to me, I've said to many of you when we've talked that Preaching here at Ridgecrest is a, is a joy, and I've, I love it more every week, and, and being able to preach to you and teach the word to you, but many times when I'm preaching, especially about this time of the service, I feel like, and this is the sensation, I feel like I'm on the bottom of Hoover Dam, and I'm just looking up at this wall. Now, in the first service, this room is pretty comfortably full, and so what I'm looking at is a wall of humanity, and in this room now, I mean, we've got people really in every section, and in a sense, it's the same way. I, I feel like, like I'm, I'm like water coming up against a concrete wall, 
a dam. That's how it feels. Now, now um, I, I told you already, I love preaching here. Uh, it, it just really is the case, it seems, like in our day, um, <laughs> Baptist in particular, we kind of have this mantra, I shall not be moved. But anyway, um, I get it. But as I was preaching Wednesday night, the Lord gave me these words, and I want to share them with you. Today, we've had some good crowds. There'll probably be 11, 1,200 people that will have worshiped with us. And if it's a typical Sunday, at most, one or two people will come to the altar and pray. And we'll all leave and have lunch or whatever we're going to do. And the Lord just laid it on my heart that how can it be that that many people can come into a room like this week after week and not feel the burden of a sin that is unconfessed? How can it be that this many people can not share a brokenness in their heart that only God can heal? How can it be that this many people have it all figured out and don't need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, you alone can help me, and I'm pretty thirsty? Week after week. I think that's the wall. The wall is... It's not that you're or or I or any of us are bad people. It's just that we have decided that we're going to put off doing what God has called us to do. If the Lord is telling you, if he's bringing to your mind right now a sin that has not been confessed, and it doesn't have to be to me, it just needs to be between you and the Lord, why would you walk out of here and carry that out? If you are broken because of life circumstances, if relationships are crumbling all around you, and you've known this for weeks, and the Spirit of God has said, you need to pray, you need to be in the altar, and you've said no, why would you continue to live in that brokenness? I don't know what it is. But God's going to have to move you. The Spirit of the Lord It's going to have to show you that you are thirsty. And in fact, if you don't start drinking from the fountain of life, you will die. Revival is coming, we say, in September. But I have to tell you, that revival won't do much to you. No, it's not going to impact you very much. The reason it's not going to impact you very much is because you're so stubborn and you think that it's okay to continue to say no to God. And you'll say, you'll say no when I'm preaching and you'll say no when John is preaching and you're going to go home and feel the same. It's got to stop. And it only stops when we realize our need. We are at our best when we bend a knee and say, Lord, you alone can help me. Yes, yeah, Samson. Samson holds up a mirror, doesn't he? <laughs> we don't see the muscles No, that's not us. But we see the brokenness. We see the sin. We see the unwillingness to listen to the Spirit of God. That has to stop. It has to stop if revival is going to come. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. So my thought is this. Someone so flawed, so wicked, so backward in so many ways, the Spirit still rushed upon him. And so if you were the one who said earlier, well, at least I'm not as bad as Samson, well, let me say this. You are at least as good as Samson. The Spirit can rush on you too. And you desperately need that. And so as we finish this time together, if there is a sin in your heart that you've been holding on to, 
just bring it to the altar and leave it here. If there is a relationship, a darkness in your life that just won't go away, bend a knee and bring it here. Samson, the only thing he does right is once in his life, he says to the Lord, I'm sorry, I need your help. Will you come? Heavenly Father. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.